Welcome to Surrey's Greener Future, a series of podcasts about the issues surrounding climate change. These podcasts are the result of an initiative by Surrey County Council that started in late 2019. In these podcasts, we aim to give you factual information, bust myths, and identify ways where each and every one of us, whether living in Surrey or further afield, can do our bit to make that crucial difference to benefit both us and, more importantly, future generations. Like many people these days, I'm thinking more and more about the carbon footprint of the things that I eat and drink. I enjoy a glass of wine, but if I look at my glass, I have to wonder about the environmental impact of the wine that I'm drinking, as, for example, it may have traveled halfway around the world before reaching my glass. Today, I'm talking to Luke Landers, the sustainability lead at Naked Wines, and James Crawford, who runs the UK business and is known as the skipper. And we're talking about the impact that my glass of wine has on the environment. At this stage, I must declare an interest in that Naked Wines have been my main wine supplier for over 12 years. Before we get into the environmental aspects of my glass of wine, could you tell me who Naked Wines are? So Naked is a business that was founded in late 2008, and it was founded on the premise that the wine industry is challenging for a number of reasons. It's a challenging agricultural industry. You have grapes that are prone to weather variants, you know, climate variants, the harvest variants, etc. You have a very challenging route to market. It's fragmented. It's generally dominated by things like big grocers. And the people who actually work the magic, the winemakers, don't really get the recognition that they deserve. A lot of that influence in the industry is essentially driven by the final person who presents the wine to the customer. So quite often the retailer or a set of wholesalers and agents that sit in the middle. Naked was to actually connect winemakers directly with their customers and to do that in a meaningful way. And that meaningful way is that customers actually subscribe to Naked Wines. They put money into their account every month, which is held as a prepayment against any wine that they buy. Naked Wines uses that money to essentially invest into the supply chain and fund the working capital of the winemaker. And that removes a number of the barriers that an up and coming or aspiring winemaker may have to being successful. It provides them financing, which means that the, the cycle of buying grapes or farming grapes, turning them into wine, that wine has to sit in barrel for a long period of time sometimes and then get bottled. So there's, there's a lot of cash required up front before the wine reaches the likes of you and me. It removes that financing condition for them. And it also provides them essentially the equivalent of what a, a publisher would provide to an author, which is a sales and distribution channel through to the customer. So it means that the winemaker can spend their time working their magic in the vineyard and the cellar and not spending a lot of time on the road, pouring little dribbles of wine, getting restaurants to taste it and try and drive their sales. And in doing that, we are able to essentially cut out a set of wholesale or agent margins in the middle, give customers great value and give winemakers an opportunity to bring a product to market with their name on it that they might otherwise not be able to do. Have you acquired many customers over the years? 
The business has globally now just under a million customers. The business kind of moved into the US and Australia in about, I want to say, 2011, 2012. The US is now the biggest part of the business globally, actually, just bigger than the UK where we were founded. Australia remains a bit smaller. And I think, yeah, as of the list results that we reported, it was 900 and something thousand active angels, which is what we call the people who subscribe into their account every month that we had served in the last 12 months. Now, you've appointed a sustainability person to your team. Why? Basically because it's important, but it's important to a number of different parties. I think very personally, I care that we do business in the right way. But the core of our ethos is doing business in the right way and, and leaving the planet and our, our communities in a better state than we found them. Our customers increasingly care about our sustainability agenda and credentials. As a listed business, we have certain regulatory requirements around sustainability and an ESG agenda. And ultimately, yeah, our staff also are very vocal about us doing things the right way. And when I took over the role of MD a couple of years ago, I realized a lot of what made Naked special was that we did try and do things in the right way, but we'd never quantified it. We'd never committed resource to it. And that meant that we were doing it almost haphazardly. We were doing a lot of things that are right, and we'll talk about some of those. But actually, what we needed to do is almost be as rigorous around our sustainability efforts as we are around our wine quality or our marketing or our financial performance, everything else. And we're a data-driven business, and we needed somebody to drive that agenda single-mindedly rather than it being a little part of everyone else's job. Making wine uses quite a lot of natural resources. There's water in irrigating vines. There's the temperature at which people are trying to grow grapes, the effects of climate change. All these must be having an impact on the actual process of producing the wine wherever in the world it is produced. It's really interesting because I think that within the mainstream media and kind of public perception, climate change and the impacts of what's happening is kind of really at the forefront of our minds now. But I think winemakers have kind of been facing these challenges for years they're very acutely aware that if they're not good stewards to the land that they have their vines on then actually that will hinder their future ability to grow grapes and make wine so it's right front and center for those guys and with it being geographically dispersed there's lots of different factors that impact different regions differently so for example more recently we've seen floods in Germany which had a massive impact on the wine region there whereas in California and Australia previously we've seen wildfires and then in France in the past year there's been frost so it's a whole spectrum of impacts around the globe being felt differently by different winemakers what can the winemakers do are they sitting down to see whether there are things they can do to improve their impact or is it well that's the way the world's going no, they're, they're being really proactive, which is, which is really encouraging. There's a mixture of approaches happening. So there's definitely a sense of collaboration and wanting to work together as an industry. So there's a lot of working groups kind of popping up, driving sustainability and talking about what best practice is, how it can work in principle. But also at an individual level, they're looking at their wineries, they're looking at their vineyards, they're gathering data, measuring impacts, trying to understand where things could improve. And I think that's kind of generally across the board, that's something that's happening. And it's encouraging and motivating to see such drive within the industry to, to want to do better. Now, once they've made the wine, it might be in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, closer to home in France or even in the UK. 
it has to be transported. I presume that transport is one of the generators of greenhouse gases. Are there ways that we can reduce the amount of greenhouse gas in that transport? So transport's a really interesting element of the kind of carbon footprint of wine. Two ways I'd look at this. So one is the distance and method that you are transporting the wine, but also the next element is the weight of the package itself. And if I kind of deal with that element first, so it's a case of saying, well, the wine will, will be the product we need to ship, but determining on how we package that when we ship it can then impact whether there's additional emissions. So if we ship wine that's been bottled, say in Australia, we are shipping wines around the globe in glass bottles. So we're, we've got additional weight there. If we can use things like flexi tanks, which are essentially 24,000 litre plastic pouches, they're inside a shipping container. We can actually cut a lot of the additional weight of the glass out and actually make the transport more efficient. And then we can bottle it closer to where people actually want to consume it. When we think about the method and the distance, so we don't fly any wines around and, and, and no one does because it's not economically or environmentally sensible, but deciding whether routing for logistics, et cetera, that's all going to have an impact. So whether a French wine comes straight to England or whether it goes via other nations to get here can all have an impact on the footprint. And a lot of the logistics is under pressure at the moment from the kind of broader global challenges, which I'm sure we're all aware of. The UK is getting more friendly to wine production. 20 years ago, we probably were very good at producing sweetish white wines in England and also sparkling wine. But now we're getting dry still wines. And I remember listening to, was it Simpsons, talking about making a red Pinot Noir in the UK. So things must be improving for locally produced wine. I think they are. I think, sadly, as the climate changes and we're seeing it being warmer in the UK, it's becoming more benevolent to vines in this country. And a, a lot of the geology, the terroir, if you will, is very similar to parts of France, right? You, you only have to look at a geological map and it, it joins up straight across the channel. The reality is, and, and you may have heard Charles and Ruth say this, that still with the UK climate being what it is, the yields you get in the UK are still significantly lower than you'll get more on continental Europe. As a result of that, both the, the wine tends to be more expensive because the overheads per litre of liquid, if you will, are that much higher. And it also means that a set of the costs, be that you know, irrigation, be that the kind of farming costs and therefore the environmental impact, if you've got tractors driving around, irrigating, fertilising, etc., are split across lower volumes. So whilst climate changes bringing production closer to the UK. Unfortunately, at, at this point, it's not a strong enough driver that it necessarily makes it economic and environmentally favourable to shipping. Well, we've talked about producing the wine and getting it to Britain. And I suppose a message that we take from that is that domain bottled is probably environmentally unfriendly compared to bottled in Britain from bulk supplies which is a message I think that's probably quite important to a lot of people who believe that they should drink the main bottled wines because they're going to be far, far better. I would absolutely agree with that. And I think the bulk shipping and bottling example is a great one of something when I, when I said earlier that Naked was doing a lot of the right things but not in a structured way. And I think it's also a nice example that generally, in my experience, and I, I worked at Diageo for many years and they were very clear on this, that when you try and do the right thing environmentally, generally you end up doing a good thing economically for your customers. Because if you're using less fuel, if you're shipping more efficiently, if you're using less water, 
costs go down and customers get better value. So whilst our bulk shipping was born out of a desire to give customers the best value and the best quality, because when you ship wine in bulk, it's much more temperature stabilized than it is when it's in bottles because the sheer volume of liquid. Actually, it brings with it an environmental benefit. And I think it's a nice alignment of the incentives and the rewards of doing the right thing. Just to add to that as well, I think it's about 25% of our wines at the moment are bulk shipped in that way. So it's quite a significant portion of what we ship. So the wine's got into the bottle. The bottle has to be closed and we've got screw top bottles that are modern. But there isn't anything quite as exciting as pulling a cork from the bottle, that lovely plop as it comes out of the bottle. What are the facts? What is the most sustainable way of closing my bottle of wine? That's a really interesting question. And depending on which side of the fence you sit, it it is still up for debate. Cork itself is kind of the more traditional closure and has a number of benefits. So it's natural. It can be grown. So therefore it's seen as renewable. But there's challenges with it in terms of kind of the ease of recycling in the UK, which is, again, something we have to consider in terms of the end of life of our packaging. Whereas the screw top is a bit easier in terms of that element. The cork offers, as you've touched on there, the element of kind of having an event and opening a wine, whereas screw cap is much more convenient. So this leads nicely into the tangent of, well, sustainability is one element, but actually bringing our customers along that journey with us is really important and outlining the benefits of cork or screw cap, whether it's convenience or whether it's an environmental decision, making sure that that messaging is really clear and transparent so that we allow customers to make an informed decision. If I'm looking at cork as a style rather than actual pure cork there was a phase a few years ago where quite a lot of the corks were in fact plastic now is genuine cork more environmentally friendly than a plastic cork from the reports i've seen i believe so the short answer to that is that there are still some challenges with having plastic in there but it's not necessarily entirely bad and i think it kind of touches on the whole packaging element that not all packaging is perfect, but it's about trying to pick the right type of packaging for the right kind of time. So for example, if I was having a barbecue and had a number of friends over, it's perhaps more sensible for me to look at ordering a boxed wine than it is to have six bottles, for example, on the side. In terms of the carbon footprint, the boxed wine is far superior and and has much less of an impact. Whereas for a different event, then yes, a bottle might be right. To summarise on closure, it's worth saying two things. One is it's wide open for discussion because it depends if you look at it, including end of life or not. It depends you know, if you look at it, including spoilage or not. So we all know that some corked wines will spoil. Generally, screw caps will not. If you overlay the cost of the odd bottle that you have to throw away as a result of spoilage, that will claim the number. I think more broadly, and and I'm not trying to sidestep the issue because it is fascinating, but the closure is a relatively small part of the carbon footprint of a bottle of wine. I think it's worth keeping closure in perspective whilst people get very, very interested in what the right answer is. Actually, from our perspective, it's not the priority to solve. We're going to talk about glass in a minute, I'm sure. And glass is a much more important problem to solve than closure at the moment. Well, you certainly brought me on to the belief that some people have in that the heavier the bottle, the finer the wine. There is definitely that perspective, and I think it, it brings into sharp focus the need to, to educate as we take people on this journey. I would love that we can move towards lighter bottles across the range. 
as I do that, I need to balance the environmental impact with the consumer impact. And actually, if by lightweighting our bottles, people stop shopping with us and go and buy heavy bottles elsewhere that weren't shipped in bulk, actually, we end up with a net negative impact. But therefore, we want to make sure that we're educating people as to what a difference it makes. And a little bit of what you'll have seen as an angel with me communicating to people the journey we're going on is to get people ready to start seeing on the website this is an indication of the footprint of this product versus that one. And it's driven by things like it's got a really heavy bottle. It's come from Australia, et cetera, et cetera. There's two key areas on this, really. So one is we can make glass bottles lighter. So effectively, we then use less glass in doing so. And the second is looking at incorporating higher levels of recycled glass content within the glass bottles. Doing both of those things will help reduce the carbon impact of our packaging and the benefits there are numerous in that in terms of the actual manufacturing, the resources required initially up front to make the bottle, they're less. In terms of then shipping it to us, they're less. In terms of then shipping them on, they're less again because of lightweight. The lightweight benefit, as it were, carries through. So it's really powerful. One concern, obviously, is that we don't go too light. We need to make sure that our wines arrive in one piece. There's no use making a super light bottle. And then we find that they're all getting damaged. So actually, all of the resources both natural and financial that have been put into these great wines don't then get to be enjoyed. It's, it's a huge waste. So it's definitely a technological limit to how far you can go. It feels like across our range, there's a good opportunity to drive change with the wines that we're responsible for bottling, but also working with our winemakers where they bottle more locally. I did read somewhere very recently that very little recycled glass goes into wine bottles because people have an expectation of the colour of the glass or it to be clear glass or whatever. Do you think this is something that you can change people's attitudes on? I'd certainly like to think so. I'm definitely a sustainability optimist in terms of a number of angles, whether it's education on elements like this or, or elsewhere. And I think it's kind of my role to help try and push naked and, and work with the team there to see how we best engage people. We've got a really engaged online community of angels actually dedicated to sustainability within one of our community forums and the ideas and the passion that comes out of that really makes me think that there's a willingness there we've obviously got other angels who are on a different element of the spectrum so we need to bring them along i think with james and the marketing team we can definitely do our best to convey those messages make them understandable justify what we're doing and hopefully people will understand that it's the way that we need to go I'm a big believer in the old phrase that sunlight's the best disinfectant. So the more we can surface some of the facts around this will actually drive change all the way through the supply chain because as customers care about it, if they change their buying preferences based on the data that we share, winemakers will sit up and listen when they realise that they need to make their bottles lighter because it's having an impact. So I think communication and transparency on this is going to be increasingly important. I've challenged Luke to help us up our game on that quickly and simply, and hopefully we'll have something to show for that in the next year or so. A few years ago, wine boxes were quite popular, and then they seem to fade away, but I've noticed that you've started to reintroduce them into your range. You essentially cut out somewhere of the order of one to one and a half kilos of glass, and you replace that with 100 grams of cardboard and, admittedly, a plastic bladder, which is not necessarily easily recyclable. But when you look at the energy savings in glass, the transportation savings, because it's just a lighter package, and compare that to what it would have been, there's a material saving. I think slowly the message is landing with the consumer that boxed wine doesn't have to be bad wine. 
I say slowly because I, I see it even on our message boards, which is, oh, I'd never pay that much for this. It's a box wine. It's like, well, it's about the same price, if not slightly less than three bottles of something that you were already drinking. It's exactly the same liquid. But there is a perception of box wine equals cheap wine. There's a number of interesting startups, one of which is made by two ex-colleagues of ours. But there are things like the bagging box wine company, Lalo, he says, plugging his competitors for a moment, who are specializing in box wine. And I think the fact that there are people doing that is really helping land the message that box wine can equally be a premium wine experience. From the box wine range that we have and looking at what the wines would have been bottled in, all of them would result in a more than 75% reduction in CO2 from the packaging. So actually, it's quite considerable. The ratings angels are giving them are, are generally scoring quite well. And I think in some instances, there's a couple of boxed wines that are scoring higher than the bottled. So that in itself is surprising, but also indicates you know the level of quality that people are getting from them. I suspect also that one of the issues in the past with boxed wines was that they used to be quite large boxes. Have you considered what size you can actually put in boxes we haven't experimented too much. We're a business that likes to kind of test and measure the data. At the moment, all of our boxes are 2.25 litres, so three bottles of wine. Obviously, we have the data on everyone's purchasing habits, so we have tended to focus marketing for those boxes on people who have been buying three or more bottles of wine in a case. The life of that box is about six weeks once it's opened. So obviously drinking three bottles of wine in six weeks, it's certainly well within the medical guidance as to what is safe to be drinking. We used to own Lay and Wheeler as part of Majestic. They have run a five-litre box of rosé. There is certainly some demand for bigger and bigger boxes. And as Luke says, that gets you into the kind of events and party space very, very clearly. It's not really the core shopping mission of a naked customer, but certainly it's something that we might experiment with once we've established the buying habits and patterns of the 2.25 litres that we're, we're currently selling. We've looked at getting the wine into the bottle or box. Once you've done that, of course, you have to store it, waiting for people to order it. So what's the environmental impact of warehousing and picking and packing? In terms of the environmental footprint, it might be useful for me just to touch on the lifecycle assessment that was conducted by some external consultants before I joined and just give you an indication of kind of some of those data points. Because actually, the warehousing element, although it is important, it's less significant than you might perhaps think. The ingredients element of the footprint the grapes and that element is around 25%. Glass bottles, about 25%. The production, so the fermentation, the bottling, 20%. The transport, so that's the import and the distribution, so and inclusive of the warehouse, is again about 20%. And then kind of other packaging, so labels, closures, other kind of boxes, and end of life is about 10%. So the warehousing element slots into that 20% of the transport element. The warehousing component is not a huge component of the footprint. We historically have consolidated all our wine into one site in the UK. In the last year, that's had to expand as the business has expanded. But there are certain things that our warehouse providers do. So they look at using green electricity. They make sure that they have lights on automated switches. There's no point lighting an entire warehouse when there's nothing happening and the wine's just sat there in the dark. That's a perfectly adequate solution. Because it is outsourced, obviously, we work with our partners to understand what the levers are that they can pull. And they have the same incentive as we do, which is the less electricity they use, the better. But they've built a very modern site. It is therefore very efficient and they've now automated it. We've probably exchanged some greater use of electricity for a lot less human movement 
which is just a, a necessary evil when you reach the scale that we've reached, because otherwise the wine couldn't be picked and packed effectively to meet our customers' needs. If we can increase our accuracy of picking, it then means we have to then actually do less reshipping of wines later on. If there's anything been missed or whatever, that is a positive of moving to automation. There's also an element where historically there would be a kind of picking pack sheet within the order boxes, whereas now that can be removed. So actually we can save paper for automation too. Over a year, it's going to be tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of pieces of paper. Now, once it's picked and packed, the company that you use to make the deliveries comes and collects it then splits up the orders, puts them into a, one of the many vans that come down the little side road that I live on each day and delivers it to my address. What are the benefits of direct delivery to my home environmentally compared to maybe delivering to some local collect facility? This is an area, I think, of live debate in the public domain. The most compelling answer I've seen would suggest that it's beneficial from a, a CO2 footprint perspective if you were going to take a trip into town to buy your wine from a specialist retailer, it is better that you don't do that and it's delivered to your door. And there's some simple logic for that, which is that van is stopping about every four houses these days. To the extent to which you are already going to make a car journey into town to go to the shop, then you adding another stop to that would probably be the reverse of that. It depends a little bit in terms of what would your alternative be. But I think then the other thing worth saying is that the courier networks, which we use, and obviously there's a number of them, are generally at the forefront of beginning to think about how they drive efficiency. We all know what fuel prices are like. If you imagine running a courier network, that's a very big consideration. I think what you'll find is over time, it's more likely that the professional driving network is going to electrify and become more efficient quicker than the general public. There's no clear cut answer on this. We have challenged our courier yodel to say what is their environmental strategy and how are they gonna drive sustainability. I think it would be honest if I was to say they're probably at a similar place to us. They're just looking at appointing dedicated resource, but they acknowledge their incentives have been the same as ours. And I forget the exact number they shared with me, but their fuel use per mile trunking and courier has come down significantly over the course of the last two or three years as they've driven some efficiency initiatives. But they were coming at it, as I say, very much from an economic perspective initially. But then you've got to recognise that the sustainability benefit comes with that as well. So I've got my bottle of wine to my door. I can open the bottle, no matter how it's closed, and enjoy a glass of wine. Some of the things that we've talked about require a change in your customer habits. How do you think this can be driven? I know you've set up a group within your notice boards on your site, but are there other things that you can do? going to go back to a little bit of what I touched on earlier there, which is, yes, I think there are. I think it relates to transparency and education. If you look at any wine on our site, there's a list of information we provide about it, whether that's where it comes from, what grape it's got, allergen information, is it vegan friendly? I believe there are a set of sustainability categories we could add to that information to help consumers make educated choices. And at the same time, we can use our marketing access to those consumers to help educate them as to the impact of those different things. I don't know exactly what that looks like yet. That is something that we're going to be working on, but you, you could imagine anything from a red to green kind of, has this come from Australia in a heavy bottle, not shipped as bulk, or actually has it been grown in Kent? 
bottled and basically put in lightweight glass. Obviously, those two will have very different footprints. Sharing that with people, I think, will give them the choice as to whether or not they wish to choose the equivalent of shopping local, shopping low CO2. For me, it's really about beginning to drive that. And then, as I say, fundamentally, I know if consumers start to vote with their purchasing, that will drive change all the way back through the supply chain. When we use the phrase sustainability at Naked, we think about a broader agenda than just the environment. So Lucas summarised sustainability nicely as essentially leaving the planet in a better place than we found it, whether that's around people, whether that's around the environment, etc. So we focus across five areas, which is around responsible drinking, dealing with waste, supply chain management, things like anti-modern slavery, etc. Treating our people right, both our employees, but also our winemakers. And ethics and transparency, making sure we're doing things in the right way and being very clear about it. And I think, yeah, you will see if you look around our website, the different things we're doing. Before we finish, I'd just like to touch on Naked's charity, which I know has given support to winemakers across the world, and most particularly to one in South Africa. We do some charity work that we're incredibly proud of, where we support one of our winemakers who feeds children in South Africa who were not getting enough food to be able to concentrate at school. And we've essentially unleashed the power of our angel community in the UK. And last year we collected about three quarters of a million pounds that is feeding hungry children in South Africa and making sure they're getting what they need to concentrate well at school. And that's an initiative that we are incredibly proud of. We support charities locally. We run what we call lunch activities where we'll have people put some money in where the company will provide lunch, but people will pay for it and we'll give that to a local charity. So there's a set of different things we do, whether that's around charity, employee engagement and training to make sure that we are having a positive impact on all of our communities. And we're we're very proud of the fact we do that. Thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you for having us on. Yeah, thanks for having us. Well, that's given me a lot to think about over my next glass of wine. I hope that you found that informative and that you'll think about the issues that we've discussed when you're next buying some wine. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio as part of Surrey's Greener Future programme. Please use this material to help inform others.